I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is a stick with a point. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast, where the chat is with some of the essential workers of the classical music industry. I describe these as luminaries behind the scenes, without whom this bizarre business just couldn't function. Today, we're going to meet someone who is heading into his seventh decade of active service. He's worked with orchestras both as manager and consultant, run a radio station, the League of American Orchestras, and probably lots of other things I'm yet to find out about. All the while, he's been a perceptive and very often an outspoken commentator. I hope you enjoy it. Henry Fogel, thank you very much for joining me today. It's very kind of you. It's a great pleasure. Now, Henry, um, I'm hoping to ask you a lot of serious questions today, and I know that you're more than up to the challenge. And one that I think is very pertinent to, to our times is how I'm seeing music, music business, classical music in particular, getting dragged into all sorts of um, social arguments. Uh, do you think that's something we ought to be concerned with, or do you think we, uh, we should be um, addressing this in any way? Well, first of all, I don't think that's new. You don't think Fidelio was involved in social issues of its day? Um, I think that music has always, all culture, whether it's painting, you know, I remember um, some battle that went on years ago in Chicago because the School of the Art Institute started putting up student paintings that had really strong social messages. And I remember somebody at a press conference that I was involved in because it was involving the Illinois Arts Alliance said, well, you know, art should be separate from politics. And I said, have you ever looked at Guernica of Picasso? Art has always had to connect. It's not an escapism. Maybe at times, maybe at times it lifts you above the problems of the world. But in fact, I think it always has been. Back in the early 90s, uh, I persuaded, and I didn't have a hard time doing it, Daniel Barenboim, to do a work called African Portraits by a composer who's now known, I think, as Hannibal Lacumbe. He was an African-American trumpet player at the time named Hamilton, Hammer, sorry, Hannibal Peterson, but he changed his name to Lacumbe. Then for a while, he went just as Hannibal. And it was a 60-minute work for chorus, soloists, and orchestra that told dramatically the story of slaves being put on ships, traveling, coming to the United States, being sold, including a scene that is a slave auction, using the actual words of a slave auction. And then it actually ends kind of optimistically with a, with a chorus of, of hope. And that's a brief summary of a, a one hour work. Very powerful piece. And we didn't play it on a special concert for African-Americans in Black History Month. 
to put it on a subscription concert. And Baron Boyn programmed standard repertoire on the first half of the program. And I remember Hannibal speaking at the DuSable Museum of Black History in Chicago about this in a kind of promotional talk with me there. He looked at me and he said, you know what I love about Brother Henry? Brother Henry put this on a regular concert. He says, I'm regular. <laughs> and one of the most moving things that I think has happened to me in almost six decades in the music business was watching the audience, which the, the piece has a gospel song in it. It has an African griot. I mean, it's a multicultural and multi-music kind of piece. And watching the black audience that we did attract sitting next to the normal subscription audience and all kind of enjoying this piece and the gospel number brought the house down every night. And then as people were leaving the hall, I was in the lobby. And at one point I saw this white couple, I would guess in their 60s, walk over to this black family that was leaving. Clearly, they didn't know each other because there was no recognition. They just, the woman from the white family tapped the woman from the black family on the arm and said, I want you to know I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. very telling, very telling. So, if, if you, I have felt and I have talked about for my whole time in the, in the industry that music can't be unrelated to the real issues of the day. That doesn't mean you deal with everything with specificity, but you use the art to raise people's thinking about important issues. And I, I, I mean, couldn't agree with you more, Henry. Uh, what I'm worried about, though, is how social media and the capacity for people using it to communicate with a much more, um, much larger audience is is hijacking the message that you and I want to get out from what we call, uh, unfortunately, classical music. Uh, and, and the idea that the Beethoven is representative, for example, of, of uh, elitism and a class system, I'm finding that very hurtful because I've spent all of my life trying to break down barriers between the audience and the performers and the music itself, and I'm sure you have as well. Yes, but the problem is the industry has not. Mm -hmm. The music industry has not. Yeah, it is now finally club. realizing that it has to. And that's the reason, or at least a part of the reason, that you hear this scream of elitism. Um, I mean, I can give you a lot of examples. We, we used to call, and probably in some cases still call, 28-year-old assistant conductors maestro, which is a distancing word. We used to write, and again, I think this has changed a little bit, but we still used to write program notes about the retrograde inversion of the secondary fugue theme that resolves on the harmonic seventh that nobody without a musicology degree could understand. Uh, we have classical music announcers who speak as if there's a halo over their head when they're introducing piece. That style has kind of gone. Um, so much about the way we have presented music. Look at movie, and it's not just the music industry, but it went along with it. If you look at movies from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, you'll see classical music concerts 
where the entire audience is in tuxedos. Yeah. Now, frankly, outside of Bayreuth and Salzburg, that's never been the case. But you see that. You see that in, in replications of what is supposed to be like Carnegie Hall. And that image was actually fostered for some reason by the music business because it allowed people in it and who liked it to feel superior. My big issue, and I was be, actually, people joked with me about this, my big issue is clapping between movements. It's historically wrong to avoid that. Of it's, course. A 20, it's a 20th century convention. Um, it's if very, Haydn didn't get applause between movements of his symphonies, he thought there was something wrong. Yeah. What, about, what, what don't they like about it? Yeah, but I watched just a couple of years ago, Chicago Symphony with Maestro Muti, I'm sorry, after the third movement of the Pathetique of Tchaikovsky, which always gets applause mm -hmm. and did, he turns around and goes, no, it's not over. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, not only have you intimidated the hell out of them, but they're applauding you. And they paid a lot of money for that ticket to applaud you. Um, and, you know, back in the late 70s or early 80s, I think, maybe it may have been the mid 80s. Yeah, it was because I was already in Chicago. The League of American Orchestras did a series of focus groups around the country trying to learn why people did and did not go to concerts. And what they did, they did it in a whole bunch of different cities, and Chicago was one of them. And one of the things they did was they set focus groups up of different categories, different cohorts. The most important one to me was what the league called the CANAs, the CANAs, the Culturally Aware Non-Attenders, meaning people who went to the opera, went to the theater, went to museums, may have even gone to the Nutcracker at a ballet company, but did not go to the orchestra. Those were the interesting ones. To me, that was the biggest potential audience that the orchestra wasn't getting. I sat in the Chicago focus group, and I don't, I don't know if you or your listeners know how focus groups work, but the people running them are hidden from the group that's being talked as a professional facilitator who facilitates a conversation, but those people are not told that this is being run about orchestras. So I and other CSO people were behind a one-way mirror. We could see them, they couldn't see us, but we were listening. And it eventually people figured out from the conversation that it was about orchestras, but for the first hour or so they didn't. Not only in Chicago, but in every city that this was done, that group in particular, the principal reason they didn't go was they felt intimidated. They didn't feel they knew enough about music. And, and this came up in city after city after city. I'm afraid of being embarrassed because I'm clapping at the wrong time. And well, I that's, thought that's I'm something we've all thinking. felt, Henry, isn't it? That's something we've all felt. I feel it when I go to the opera because I come from the symphonic world, as it were. Um, I feel as though when I go to the opera, that I'm in 
somebody else's house. And how do we break those barriers down? I, I've wanted to do it all my life. I well, felt as though I've been doing it all my life. Well, the first thing that you do, we do, is, and, and I have to say both George Schulte and Daniel Barenboim did this, if there's a clap between movements, turn around, acknowledge it. Don't bow, don't have the orchestra stand, obviously, but acknowledge it and act as if you are pleased that they're applauding instead of angry. Um, that's a big one. I think orchestras writing uh, notes in their books, uh, essays in their program books that talk about the history of clapping between movements and the, how normal it was back through the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, I don't know if you ever read Joseph Tsigeti's autobiography, which is a wonderful title. It's called With Strings Attached, which I think is great for a violinist. It's wonderful. He it? actually yeah. describes in the 1880s or 90s giving a concert playing a Mozart concerto with Richard Strauss conducting in Munich. And he said, we were both on, and we, we both felt this was a terrific performance. And at the end of the first movement, nobody clapped. And I leaned over to Strauss and said, why aren't they applauding? And he whispered back, it's the critics who have them scared of clapping between movements. Wow, wow. I want to add something and, to that, Henry. Uh, can I just add, I have a, a letter from the cellist Beatrice Harrison to Elgar. And it's about the first performance of the cello concerto in Vienna. Um, I can't remember the date, sometime in the 20s. And uh, she wrote to Elgar saying that after the slow movement, they couldn't proceed for a while because the applause wouldn't stop. And that yeah. just shows that at the first hearing of a piece that truly moved people, that was their response to burst into spontaneous applause. Yeah, there's a better piece of evidence of that from that same composer because his wife could not attend the premiere, she was ill, of the Second Symphony, which he conducted. And he telegrammed her the next day, after the slow movement, they applauded so much we had to repeat it before we could continue. And then he wrote, isn't that wonderful? Well, Henry, so, you, you've just lived I mean, up to, to all my expectations of, with your Elgar credentials there. Bravo, you. But, but, you know, it's nonsense, but it's nonsense that the music business spent a long time encouraging. And, yeah. uh, and there's so much of it. I, again, and I don't want to take a lot of time with anecdotes, but this is an absolutely true story. We had been in Chicago about three or four years we were, our, the furnace in our house went out. My wife called the furnace repair man and in came a guy who she said was right out of central casting for a furnace repair man with overalls and tools in his pocket about in his mid thirties. And he happened to pass the room that had my outrageously large, even then record collection. And he said, oh, you've got a lot of records. What, what kind? And my wife said, well, they're, they're mostly classical music. And he said, oh, I love classical music. I listen to WFMT, which is Chicago's classical station, all the time. Mrs. Fogel, do you ever go to the symphony? And my wife chuckled and said, well, yeah, my husband manages it. He said, you know, I'd love to go, but I don't own a tuxedo. Wow. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is it possible? that my wife ran into the only person in the United States with that misapprehension? No, it's not. So 
my wife being very smart, got his address and name, and I sent him a pair of tickets and told him to dress however he felt comfortable, and he started going. But that image, we haven't fully gotten rid of it yet. And I guess what I felt was, I talked about it a lot among managers, and they all talked about it, but not many of them took positive steps to try to change it. Um, we printed articles about the history. I fired our program annotator that had been in Chicago for 30 years because he was a musicologist. And if you weren't a musicologist, you couldn't understand his notes. Um, I think that those in the business, performers as well as managers, need to think about everything they say, how they say it, will somebody who doesn't understand music be made to feel comfortable or uncomfortable by what you're saying and how you say it? I think that today as well, Henry, we have to, we have to recognize that the vast majority of our audience doesn't know what we in the business call a canon. They don't know the standard repertoire like right. 50, 75 years ago and before um, people might have known in higher proportions than they do today. And I think that um, there's been no interim step between the situation you describe and the situation we find ourselves in now where we're going out trying to appeal to a new audience. We're going to them rather than having a progression whereby they want to come to us. And right. it's, it's because we've, we've created this sort of exclusive club as an yep. industry. That it, yeah. that it that prevents people coming close to us. Uh, yeah, by the way, don't forget the canon today is not, the canon 10 years ago is not the same as the canon 70 years ago. Yeah. You know, I, re I remember hearing my first Mahler symphony in 1959 or 60 at the New York Philharmonic. Mahler was not normal no. at all until after first Bernstein, and I think, and then Schulte really, with their recordings and performances, made him a part of the canon. I don't know if, you, if you're aware of this interesting fact. The first performance of Mahler's Sixth Symphony in America was given in 1945 by the New York Philharmonic and Dimitri Metropolis. Um, the work was written about 40 years earlier. The second performance in America of the Mahler Sixth Symphony was in 1957, I think, by the New York Philharmonic under Dimitri Metropolis. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Same orchestra, same conductor. Yes. Until af sometime after that, did any other conductor or orchestra play that work in America? In the I think 18th it still hadn't been performed in the UK at that time. I think probably I, not. Probably I think not. Norman Del Mar might have been the first conductor to do it, and that would have been way beyond that. Yeah. Wow. So, so that you know, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, the canon needs to constantly be thought about changing too. Let's move on a little bit away from that. I, I want to talk to you about your time at the what was the American Symphony Orchestra League, now the League of American Orchestras, and. <laughs> ask you um what what do you see as its main objectives uh, its its role within our community and sure. if it's achieved that if it's achieving that 
Uh, I think it probably has a couple of roles. First of all, you, you comment on the name change. I take credit for the name change because when it was the American Symphony Orchestra League, ASOL is a terrible acronym and I will let your viewers uh, figure that one out. Uh, so we made it the League of American Orchestras. Um, I think it, it has more than one important goal, I think. One is to develop the talent of managers at all levels. Uh, and I think it does a reasonable job of that. It could do more if it had more money to invest in that. Um, but there, the league has some very good professional development work that it does. I think a second is it's lobbying for orchestras and being part of the arts lobby network in America, in Washington. And it has been very successful at that. And Heather Noonan, who has been the lobbyist since I was there and still is, um, is the most highly regarded lobbyist in the arts community in Washington. Um, and sometimes it's issues that most of us aren't even aware of, like um, Pernambuco. Does that word mean anything to you? Yeah. Yeah, of course it does. And it probably does to your string players. Yeah. But many others have no idea what it is. It's the wood that most uh, that, that has been on the endangered wood list or whatever, and there were all kinds of restrictions, and the league has helped lobby the government to allow violinists to go out of their orchestra, the uh, country, and come back with their bows. Um, so there's there are those issues. Um, I think also one of the changes I tried to bring, and I think I did to some degree, was the league had very, very tiny relationships with orchestra boards. And boards of directors are hugely important. They really are the core of a successful orchestra. And I'm sorry to say they can be the core of a failed orchestra. Um, and board members really had no idea about the norms in the field. And the league started partly as a result of, of what I was doing when I was its president, and it's still doing today, uh, seminars and leadership programs to develop board members and their skills and their knowledge. And of course, the other thing the league does, and it does very well, is it exchanges data. And its data is better than that of the other arts service organizations. So for example, if you're running an orchestra and you wanna know what, what's the normal amount that we should be spending on fundraising? Well, it is in fact in the vicinity of between 19 and 21 cents for every dollar you raise. If you're spending a lot more than that, something is probably wrong. If you're spending a lot less than that, something is probably wrong also because you're raising the easy money. The easy money costs half as much to raise as the more difficult money. But what you can learn is all of the orchestras in my budget category and in similar cities, A, they get this much money from, the, from their board. They get this many 
$50,000 gifts, $25,000 gifts, $10,000 gifts. Those are important. Um, in my consulting years, um, which have been slowed down by the pandemic, but which I still do a lot of, <clears throat> benchmarking against comparable orchestras in similar cities and similar budget sizes is very helpful in getting an orchestra to recognize you're not doing what you ought to be doing given the size of your city and the demographic makeup of it, because here's what these orchestras in comparable cities are doing. Now, could the league be doing more in terms of the issue we talked about before of getting, helping orchestras figure out how to make this art form seem more relevant? Yeah, I think they probably could be doing more. And I, my guess is that they will once they're able to function again hey, Henry, in, in a post-pandemic I want to pick world, you up a, a little bit on this if like. I can, because I'd be interested to know when it goes back to the lobbying aspect, if that has ever in your thinking, and bearing in mind I come from a, a more European perspective perhaps than, than a lot of my colleagues, um, do you think that our business has to create a stronger case for itself to, to try and foster a culture of support that relies less on benefaction and um, has an increased um, either federal or state or city uh, degree of support to it? I, mean, we, I don't think we're very good at arguing the case that we, that we give back more than we take. And all the taxes that are involved and the other um, social aspects of orchestras within a community, the knock-on effect for other businesses, recruitment, all of that, is, is hard to recognize. And is that a factor that uh, should be brought into this equation? <laughs> you want my short answer? No. <laughs> I knew you but were I'll tell you why I see Really? <laughs> Come on. Come on. If I've been successful in my life, one of the factors is that I know not to undertake a fight that I cannot win. The arguments that you make have in fact been made and made successfully and have prevented many in Congress who would have gotten rid of the National Endowment for the Arts years ago. Um, I think you've got to recognize the whole foundation of the way America thinks is the government doesn't do it. It isn't just orchestras. It isn't just museums. It's education, you know, colleges. Um, this is a country whose DNA is that it's the people who have to support it, not the government. I would actually argue that the one thing that we often forget, Andrew, is that the government contributes more to the arts than you're first recognizing because of the tax deductible nature of charitable contributions, which is much greater than it is in Europe. And the theory is the government is contributing, but it is giving people the choice on where they wish to contribute. And then we will match that with our uh, tax deductible nature of our gift. I, we will never, ever, ever change. I, I will tell you 30, 40, 50 years ago, I used to think, boy, someday we'll get this. 
I think we're lucky to have the level that we have. Um, I think it's, it's very interesting how different states have different levels of support. Uh, Ohio has a pretty good level of state and, and local support. California has. Uh, Illinois less so, and the reason is that there's only one large city with large arts organizations in Illinois. Everything else is small and tiny. And if there were, there is a state arts council, but if they gave money out proportion to budget size, the Chicago area would take the whole big bulk of that money and downstate would get nothing. So there's a cap on what any organization can get. But I don't, I don't think that argument would ever change the politic. What I think it, the arguments you made are very good, and I think they have kept the NEA and whatever art support we have. Do you think there's a, a case in the middle for the NEA being much more substantial than it is? I mean, it's it's rather piddly compared with some funding for European orchestras. Well, it was much more substantial way back when. It let let me just be practical. It will take a democratic president and a democratic controlled Congress. To okay. do that okay. and not and probably not and probably not one uh, where that margin is 5248 um, there will always be conservatives even in the Democratic Party as well as in the Republican Party and I'm not saying all Republicans don't believe in art support and all Democrats do that's certainly not true but there are many conservative people who feel that supporting the arts is not the role of government. And I don't, I don't know with the current political climate and, and frankly, all of the other claims that are being made on federal funds for public safety and poverty and so forth, I would say it will be a very difficult sell. I think, you know, all of us, have to figure out where are we most likely to be successful in whatever efforts we expend on anything. Um, I'm sure if there are composers that you don't like and don't respond to, and somebody says, why don't you perform X? One of your answers is gonna be because the amount of time it would take me to study and get to appreciate that piece is not worth it to me. I think the amount of effort it would take if you'd ever be successful in getting the federal support level up to even a middle ground, you're better off trying to find more private donations. It, that has the, uh, the consequence of fracturing the industry, doesn't it? I mean, instead of speaking with a single voice, it means that we're all out there fighting for our own corner. Maybe that's how it should be. And I have to say as well, Henry, that one of the things that attracted me to, to come into this country was this amazing culture of benefaction and of support that, frankly, I hadn't seen at all in, in the UK. Yeah. Um, so I take your arguments. I'm just trying to be provocative. And I, I love sure. the depth of your answer. Oh, I know. But the fact is, it doesn't really fracture us because the Chicago Symphony does not suffer when the mm -hmm. Cleveland Orchestra has a success. We're, we're all looking locally. Now, does it fracture us with our local arts organizations? Not really. 
what most cities have found, I think, is that getting together somehow and A, there's enough money for all of us in the city if we work at it, and B, collaborating with other arts organizations is actually attractive to donors as well. Moving on a little bit, Henry, why don't you tell me um, what you see as being the evolving role for orchestras within within our communities? Uh, you've been observing it for a long time, as you've said. It's quite a career you're having. So how are things going to change and how are they changing? Well, I think we talked at the beginning of the discussion about the way they're changing and the way they have to change. I think orchestras have to remove all of those barriers that people perceive are there. I think orchestras have to continue to use the art form to bring people together um, and to address community pain. Um, and I will tell you, one of the changes I've seen in that long career is what is now called community engagement. Um, it used to be called outreach. Uh, back in the early 90s, and I was one of the first to do this, I banned the word outreach from the Chicago Symphony's vocabulary. It's a one directional word, and it's actually patronizing. The big wonderful we will reach out, pat pat, and we'll give you something. And it even affects the way you think about community programs. You think, we'll come up with a program and we'll reach out and we'll give it to someone. If you really mean community engagement, then what you mean is you meet with people from a community or who represent a community and you say, we'd love to have a relationship. What might that involve? What might that be like? And you come up with it together. That change has certainly happened. Um, you go back and look at orchestra structures and job descriptions and organizational charts back before in the 90s, really. You won't find community relations and community engagement or even outreach in those structures. It's there now and it's growing and it has to continue to grow. Um, I think orchestras have to figure out a way to change, and this will get some people angry, their ethnic makeup. And it's a very serious problem because people don't want to hear this. The pipeline is, is not rich in people of color, particularly African-Americans. Um, there was recently, Anthony Tomasini wrote a, an interesting and thoughtful but wrongheaded piece in the New York Times because he thought that the screens and audition, which were originally put up to uh, end discrimination, were now causing it um, because orchestras couldn't see if there were people of color auditioning. Well, I managed the Chicago Symphony for 18 years, and I went to every final audition and many of the preliminary auditions, and I spoke to our personnel manager. We had an average of 100 to 150 auditionees for every opening. If three of them were African-American, that was high. And it had nothing to do with the screen keeping them out. They aren't there. 
and they aren't there for so many societal reasons. If you want to study music at that level, it costs money. It costs money to get an instrument. It costs money to have that kind of teaching. Um, there's no question then, frankly, I have great admiration for the Sphinx organization, which is actually doing something to help this and slowly beginning to change it. I think that's an area the league should take an even stronger role in and orchestras have to. It's very hard to claim that you mean something to the whole community if your community is 30% African-American and your orchestra is one or no players of color. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big issue. But also dealing with those communities. Um, we did that, I, I told you earlier that story of the Peace African portrait, portraits, that, that broke some barriers down. Um, and, it, and those barriers stayed down. And the CSO has a better relationship than many orchestras with its communities of color, despite the fact that it has only one full-time musician who is a player of color. Ironically, by the way, because he was, I guess, raised by an adoptive family. His name is Taga Larson. Um, he sounds like he's, you know, should come out of an Ingmar Bergman movie. Yeah, quite. Um, but, um, you know, I remember when orchestra managers was, were saying, and I was fighting this even back in the 1980s, you know, music education, that's not our job. Our job is to give great concerts, even though the schools are failing in that job. And my position was, if the schools are failing, it is our job. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, Henry. And, and, and that is expanding too. So I, I guess, you know, if you want to look and people who watch this want to see a really interesting community engagement program, go to the website of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. The South Dakota Symphony Orchestra, and they're, um, they're in Sioux Falls, they have a program that their music director, David Gere, fashioned for the most important underrepresented community there, which is the L Lakota Indians. And they've been doing that for 15 or 20 years, or maybe even more. And it's a real relationship. They have commissioned music from them. They've had all kinds of things. And it's described on their website. And I've used it a long time as an example of an orchestra finding an important community in its geographical area and building an ongoing relationship with it, not doing, I'm sorry, a Martin Luther King concert on Martin Luther King's birthday. That's nice, that's fine, except that's not real community engagement. And also having your orchestra's chorus sing gospels is not real community engagement. They actually have choirs who can sing it a hell of a lot better. Henry, I, I hate to stop you in full flow because um, it's, you're quite a force of nature and it's very impressive listening to the argument there. I want to um, add my own thoughts to, or not so much thoughts, but uh, my own support to your ideas for the role of education with orchestras and, and what we can bring to communities, um, both in, in my orchestra in Fort Wayne and in Reading in Pennsylvania. We have extensive programs which are trying to engage with the underserved communities there and yeah. um, although people don't recognize this in me, I had the benefits 
of exactly the same sort of program where I came from in the UK. I came from a, a community where, you know, you didn't have any money to, to learn a musical instrument. And even if you did have the money, you weren't going to put it into learning a musical instrument because there was there was no uh, history of it. There was, right. there was no activity. Uh, so I benefited from all sorts of support schemes that way. And I see the, the merits and the value of it. Uh, and I see that our future audience and also many members um, finding greater diversity in the community and in the orchestra makeup is going to come through education projects that are supported and engineered yep. by orchestras. So that's the way ahead for us, I think. And Andrew, they have to use, people have to use imagination. Uh, I'm trying to think, Walla Walla, Walla Walla, Washington. They approached music teachers in the schools, both in the city and in the surrounding area. And what you've got, Walla Walla is a city of, it's not very big, it may be 30 or 40,000 people. And there's a surrounding rural area that's quite poor. In approaching the teachers, in, in music teachers in the schools, what's your biggest need? Well, frankly, our biggest need is we have kids who want to study music and play in our bands and our orchestras. We don't have instruments. Well, you might think, well, what can an orchestra do about that? Well, with Walla Walla Symphony, and this is now 30 years ago or 20 years ago. I was at the league at the time, and I learned about it when I visited. They said, you know what? Between our donor list, our subscriber list, and our musicians, I'll bet you there are instruments sitting in closets. They sent out an email to everybody on their list, and they actually started a program. They got enough funding to pay for the repair work. They said, you have an instrument that you're not using anymore. Donate it to us. You'll get a tax write-off. You make the donation to the symphony. We will have it repaired. We'll take care of that. We will start a program through the schools, lending it to a student. And all that student will have to do is at the end of one year, they'll have to come back, show us that the instrument is not damaged, and play it, play it so we can see that they learned something. And if so, they keep it for the second year. And they'll be able to keep it all the way through high school. They got about 250 instruments that way. Wow. Now, wow. 250 instruments in Chicago would not be that huge. In Walla Walla, that's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And they had great success with that program. And the orchestra got a lot of publicity out of it too. It just involves, I hate this cliche, thinking outside the box. But thinking outside the box brought, came up with, oh, we don't, it's not that we have to give lessons, it's not that we have to go send the orchestra anywhere. We use our email services. Yeah, it's it's recognizing the local need, isn't it? In that case, it was and, instruments. And therefore, starting by saying, we don't know the local need, we're going to go out and ask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Hey, Henry, uh, let's wrap this up by um, uh, talking about something else that you're you're rather famous or infamous for, and that uh, that is your record collection which is rather extensive and before you get into that answer this question quickly do you listen to music all the time very good i had i had to turn off after the first movement uh, klaus tenstedt and the london philharmonic playing the Mahler sixth symphony in order to do this session well you can go back to it in a moment i promise you that henry but um i think 
what I want to get to at this point is that we're during um, this this pandemic time. Uh, a lot of musicians are being creative in their own ways at home, doing all sorts of things. They're not performing. Um, a lot of them will be practicing, uh, staying fit for when they are able to go out again. But I suspect a lot of them, like me, are able to sit down and listen to music for the first time in a long time. When you're a practitioner, when you're involved in making music all the time, oh, sure. listening to it is something, A, you don't have time for, and B, you're not really sure you want to do that when you're resting. But what right. I found amazing is that everything that we're always telling our audiences and listeners, that music can be life-changing, music can be inspiring, um, it can move you to your core, I'm suddenly finding it to be true again because I'm listening to music and figuring out why I fell in love with it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's interesting because I actually listen to music in two ways. I had to learn because of my first profession, which was running a radio station. I had to learn to listen to music while doing something else because this was a mom and pop radio station. We didn't have a big staff. Everybody did everything. When I say everybody, there were like four of us. So if I was the announcer on duty, and this was the days of LPs, not CDs, I had to be listening in case the needle got stuck. Mm. <laughs> and I had to know when is it coming to an end because I have to get out of my office and go into the control room and announce the end. And I might have to read the news, which means I have to edit a newscast. So I had to learn to listen to music well enough to hear what was going on while writing a, maybe creating a commercial, editing a newscast or doing a budget. And I was able to do that. So I can listen to it in what sort of the background and really hear it because I had to really hear it. And I can also turn all those switches off and really focus on listening, but I can still get pleasure out of listening to it while I'm doing other things because I had 15 years on the radio of having to do that and having no choice. And exactly how extensive is your record collection? Own up to it, Henry. Well, first of all, big enough that my wife and I, when our children grew up and moved out of the house, we had to buy a bigger house. <laughs> it's a, I've, I've not counted it. It's about 35,000. Most of it, I'd say 25,000 CDs and maybe 10,000 LPs. You do know, I hope, maybe you don't, that, that the contents are online. Not the music, unfortunately, but the data, which makes it the by far most complete and accurate guide to timings. Much more music in it than in Daniels. I used to say more accurate, but Daniels has updated and now they're pretty accurate. I remember early editions of Daniels that listed the Von Williams London Symphony as being 31 minutes. Uh, Not in a performance I would no, ever want to hear. No. But it is, and anybody who's uh, watching us, it's, it's uh, Henry's Records, uh, one word, no apostrophe, no punctuation, Henry's Records, and it's either .org or .com. It used to be just .org because .com was a small record store in London. They went out of business and my son grabbed the URL. He's the computer programmer. But it, it, will, it has every recording that I own is in it with one exception. One, one category. I have never 
categorized and won't the, are the collections of operatic aria recital discs. Why is that? The amount of typing, typing that that would uh. require and having to distinguish between the recording of, of Celeste Aida that begins with that or that begins with the recitative first, Sequel Guerriero Fossi, I would have to listen to each one and categorize. I, I know I'm not going to do that. But everything else is, is there, and it, it's a pretty easy-to-use uh, database that I find. I mean, I remember uh, Mark Elder once telling me he never made programs without looking up the Fogel. Oh. <laughs> well, Henry, I think this tells me at least two things about your life. One is that one of your sons, at least, um, um, adores you. Uh, he'd have to love his father implicitly to to be able to create a, a catalogue. Um, and the other is that you must have an incredibly strong marriage. So bravo you. Thank you. You know, I've, I've loved every bit of it. I've, you know, I'm very lucky. Like you, in a way, my profession is the thing I love, music. Henry Fogel, it's been the greatest pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. OK, well, that wasn't boring. And I think you can see exactly why I was so enthusiastic about interviewing Henry. Next time, you can enjoy an equally engaging chat with the fabulous composer Jennifer Higdon. She's a hoot. Meanwhile, keep your comments coming. You can find me on Facebook and I want you to know that it makes all the difference when I hear from you. It really does. Until then, stay strong and healthy and enjoy your favourite music. I'm Andrew Constantine and you've been listening to A Stick With A Point.